Welcome to The Dream Season, a podcast for entrepreneurs, writers, and creatives of all kinds looking to finally find some balance in your life so you can get back to enjoying the things you love and even the things you don't love but have to do anyway. I'm your host, Holly Ostara, and together we're going to bring delight, inspiration, and sustainability to your creative flow one season at a time. So let's make this the season of your dreams. Okay, so today we're going to talk to Jack Ory. Jack Ory is an author. He wrote his first story when he was just six years old using an old typewriter his grandmother gave to him. He's a licensed master social worker, an author, and an advocate for trauma survivors and transgender youth. Jack loves showing other neurodiverse authors that they can write books and guiding them to get their stories finished and out into the world. His debut novel, Reinventing Hannah, which he released in April 2020, has helped readers feel less alone while dealing with the aftermath of sexual assault. These are big topics, Jack. Yes, definitely. Can you tell us a little bit about your history and how you came to be a social worker and what inspired you to write this story? Sure. So I've been writing since I was six years old. I also grew up transgender and closeted because I grew up in the 80s and 90s when people didn't talk about things like being transgender. So I didn't know there was a word for what I was. And Mm -hmm. so as a result, as a kid, I felt very invisible. I didn't really know how to explain it because I assumed that the adults thought that I was, said I was a girl, so I must be, something must be wrong with me that I didn't seem to be able to remember it. And uh, socially, that was also difficult because I mostly played with boys, but about around fourth grade, boys don't want to play with quote unquote girls. So um, I had a lot of boys as friends. Yeah. Yeah, so I was like, I lost all my friends because most of them were like, oh, you're a girl, stay away from me. And then I wasn't really like, didn't really have anything in common with most of the girls, so I didn't really make a lot of friends, that kind of thing. And so as I got older, I started having mental health issues, I started having depression and that sort of thing, difficulty making friends. I'm also autistic, which I was diagnosed with till adult either, so that I didn't get any kind of support with social skills or anything like that. So then by the time I had left high school, started going to college, I tended to gravitate towards relationships that were abusive because they were, first of all, with men who were more like women. So it was like I was with these closeted feminine men who probably would not even identify as that. (laughs) You know, they would say things like people treat me like I'm a woman or I feel like a woman. And I had a a close person that I was with who had a drug problem. And when he was high, he would put on women's clothes. And so mm-hmm. it was kind of like the guy in the girl's body kind of was gravitating towards these men who were like more feminine. And it just like led to some bad situations and some traumatic situations, especially I had my friend who had the drug problem overdosed and died like a couple of days after I moved out. So 
obviously like there's a lot of trauma and stuff like that and so after i transitioned which was in 2012 i think Mm -hmm. (laughs) it was a while ago so i kind of lose track of how long it's been and i started to be healthier i started to look back on a lot of these things and understand that there was a history of trauma and understand why it happened that way so when i wrote reinventing hannah i began writing just with the idea of a girl who survives a, an experience like this and I didn't know much more about it the story kind of developed as I wrote it but as I was reading other books because it's a fairly common theme in young adult literature like there are several books that are like standard for the genre and they're good books so I'm not like trying to put anyone else down but a lot of the most popular ones or most well-known ones have the formula of girl is sexually assaulted doesn't tell anyone is depressed and self-destructive for 300 pages and tell one it feels better at the end and I was like that was not the story I wanted to tell I wanted to tell a story of the person who learns to speak out and what happens after the end of these books because I was like okay so she's told people what happens next you know so I wanted to write a different kind of story and reinventing Hannah ended up being about a girl who was so quiet her friends call her mouse and then this happens to her and then she gradually becomes more vocal and at first she does do the whole not telling anyone thing and then she decides to tell her best friend and then she takes it from there and her friend accidentally betrays her secret because her friend goes and yells at her other friend for taking her to the party where it happened and so then like people over here and so she has to deal with people knowing and she has to decide who she is and the pressure from her friends to go back to being quiet Hannah who doesn't make any waves as opposed to who she wants to be and so the story is really about transformation and it's about empowerment and about how telling her story doesn't change what happened to her but it fixes the issue of feeling so powerless because she can at least do that she can help other people and she ends up becoming an advocate for survivors and is miles away from who she was at the beginning and I wanted to tell that story so I'm pretty pleased with how it came out that's really great so I also grew up in the 80s and 90s and I don't remember knowing the word transgender back then either when I was growing up so we kids today and younger people today definitely have a lot more resources but it's so new and it sounds like stories like this can be helpful to kids who may be feeling like their body doesn't quite match or something like that. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, definitely. So I think to most of my stories, I I am writing something now that has a non-binary protagonist, but my stories are not specifically about trans people, but I think the journey is the same, even though it's different. Like for me as a trans person, it definitely, there is that sense of this is not who I am. People keep telling me I'm a certain way. But I think that it's something that's relatable to everybody because I think everybody, whether you're cisgender or transgender, has had that moment where you're like, the way people see me is not the way I want to be or not the who mm-hmm. I really am. And I have to make some change here. It just happens for a trans person. The change is extensive because it involves figuring out how you're going to express your gender, who you're going to tell, if you're going to go on medication or not, or if you're going to have surgery or not, all of those things. But I definitely think there's this areas of commonality. And even if the gender thing, I think there's even areas of, of commonality. I've been watching on Netflix, Anne with an E, which is based on Anne of Green Gables, and they mm-hmm. did this whole part where she had to cut her hair very short because she had dyed it, and, and people were making fun of her because they said she looked like a boy. And I was like, 
this is very similar, only like reverse to how I felt because oh, yeah. uh, she was saying like, people don't see me as a girl. They're treating me like I'm a boy because of my hair. And it was uncomfortable. It was kind of like, as a trans person, I can identify with that. And I'm sure there were many cis people who could also identify with I'm female or I'm male, but people expect me to be a certain way. And I think that's something everyone deals with in our society. Mm -hmm. Society puts a lot of expectations on all of us and not all of them for the good. Yeah. And you said that you were also autistic. And so you're navigating authorhood as a neurodiverse author. So could you tell me a little bit more about that and maybe some tools that you use to work better as a neurodiverse author? Sure. Yeah. So the big difference, I think, is that a lot of writing advice is geared towards neurotypical people. Like one of the things I say all the time is, the idea of writing every day does not really work for a lot of neurodiverse mm -hmm. people. Some mm -hmm. it does, but for most people it doesn't. And so um, one of the things that I like to teach people is that that kind of advice, if you are neurodiverse, is like trying to run Windows software on a Mac. It isn't going uh -huh. to work. So mm -hmm. instead, some of the things I teach is I use tools like one of my favorite ones is a Pomodoro, which is a method where you set a timer for 25 minutes, you work for that 25 minutes, and you don't get distracted for that 25 minutes. If somebody notifies you on Facebook, you just wait till the timer rings before you look at it or whatever. And after 25 minutes, you take a five-minute break to do whatever you want, and then go back to it, and you repeat that cycle three or four times, and then you take a longer break. And there are apps you can use to do this. I have one called Forest, which is kind of fun because it's like every 25 minutes that you complete, like plant a tree, um and it'll be like don't close the app before you're finished or your or your plant is gonna die which you know oh it's like a new like tamagotchi yeah <laughs> so but you don't even need to use an app you can just take the timer on your phone set it for 25 mm -hmm. minutes mm -hmm. and i find that's really helpful because first of all it allows for those short bursts without either getting so much into the project that you don't do anything else or being like, I hate this. I don't want to do this. After five minutes, I'm going to quit and go on Facebook. So that's a really helpful tool and technique. When I plan my writing, I don't plan every day writing time because my life doesn't always work that way. So instead, what I do is there are sort of blocks of time on my calendar that are writing time. So like, say, for example, Thursday from two to four is writing time. The reason that's helpful for me as a neurodiverse person is because if I didn't have that and I didn't write on Tuesday or Wednesday, I'd be panicking and be like, oh my God, I missed two days of writing. How is this ever going to get done? Am I ever going to get it done? And that kind of thing. But if I know that on Thursday I have time dedicated to it, if I didn't write today, that's okay because I know that it's scheduled, it's going to happen. And mm. so... um. That's really helpful on Google Calendar or whatever calendar app you want to use. I find in general really helpful because it's easier if you have some sort of schedule rather than I just want to make sure that I'm writing every day because you can very easily get caught up in writing all day if it's going well and not getting anything else done. Or you can be like, I have other stuff to do. I don't know what to do first and get stuck. But if you know that on Monday morning you're going to do your some sort of paid work um, and on Tuesday afternoon you're going to be writing or whatever the case is, that's really helpful. And it's also really helpful if your calendar syncs to your phone because that way you'll get these reminders like I got mm -hmm. a reminder for this podcast thing, 10 minutes, you know, so you don't get distracted and forget to do something that you were planning on doing and you want to get to the end of the day and be like i can't remember what i did i know i did something but it wasn't what i planned to do you know? 
You don't want that. And then I've the been other, there. Yeah, that happens a lot. And then the other thing that's really helpful is in addition to a to-do list, you can do kind of a dumb list at the end of the day where you're like looking at it and like, this is what I did today. Yay me, I got all this done. Because sometimes you can feel like you didn't get anything done, but actually you got a lot done. I do a, a done list too. And it's really satisfying to look at at the end of the day. I kind of, I have uh, three things I accomplished where I have to fill that out each day. And then also three things I was grateful for that day. And I find that that helps me a lot. I love that. Yeah. Gratitude I'm, is so important too. It is. It is. I find that when I skip gratitude that the next day I just is not as productive or it feels yeah. harder. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely feels harder. And especially with writing, it's important to keep the positivity going because there are times where you can be like, I'm getting rejections all over the place if you're like mm -hmm. trying to submit tradi tra tra traditionally. Or if you're, even if you're self-published, you're like, okay, I published this book. I did all the marketing that I thought I should do and two people bought it. That can be kind of depressing. You it can know? be a downer, yeah. So it's really helpful to have that gratitude and be like, Yay, I got a sale today. Yeah. You know, that that can be helpful. So I think that's also really important. Some other things that I use is an app blocker on my phone. So if that's a day where I know I'm feeling distracted, I can turn that on. And if I turn that on, I can tell it don't don't let me see Facebook or don't let me or whatever else, or I might block like some game app that I keep playing a game instead of mm -hmm. working. And that way I have to do what I plan to do because if you try to open it, it'll just give you a message saying, sorry, this app is blocked. Get back to what you were, or, you know. That's a good reminder. And it takes that, that willpower aspect out of trying to focus because yeah. it's not an option anymore. You have, just have to do it. There's nothing else to do. Yeah. And when I first started doing it, it also show, give, makes you really aware of how much time you waste. Because like when I first started doing it the first day, like literally every five minutes, I would try to get off Facebook and it would be like, no. And it really makes you realize, wow, look how often I stop yeah. and take a break. And yeah. it's That's the true. kind of thing where you have to kind of balance it because sometimes there are things I have to do on Facebook, right? I have to respond to people who are in my Facebook group <laughs> or I have to put up a post about something related to writing on my main page. But having an app like this really makes it intentional so that you sit down when you have social media time that blocked off and not, I'm supposed to be writing, but it's not going well. I think I'll go scroll Facebook. I'm in a book club and actually right now we're reading a book on, well, it's how to overcome emotional eating, which is not related, but the way it approaches it is that it's an addiction and it's brought up other things for me than this. And one of those things is that we've got so many addictions and we don't realize it because it's not a drug addiction or an right. alcohol addiction, but scrolling through Facebook, you know, I think it has become an addiction for me. And since we started reading this book, I've started to think about, does this actually bring me pleasure or am I just doing it because my brain is associating X activity with then go scroll Facebook or then go scroll Instagram or something like that. And it's making me rethink things and also making me really angry <laughs> about all the social media right. companies trying to get us addicted to their stupid websites. <laughs> right. Especially because they try to sell outrage. So like a lot of times you have to be really careful with social media, like who you follow and who you're seeing because if you go on social media and you see a bunch of people ranting about politics or ranting about mm -hmm. 
whatever or ranting about what's happening in their lives that's gonna bring you down too because you're like oh my god everybody's so in a bad situation and it's contagious it is and that really affects your mindset too as an author and a creative in general and if you're constantly seeing these things that bring you down for me personally it just sinks my creativity how do you find it affects you I find that I've had to be really careful too. A lot of times if I'm on Facebook or whatever social media and I see something that someone says that annoys me, I have to think very carefully about do I even want to get into the conversation because Mm -hmm. I know that they're going to respond back and I'm either going to be like, oh my God, they responded. I'm very anxious about what they said. Relatable. (laughs) They're going to be bullying me or they're going to answer and I'm going to be like, I don't feel like it anymore and just ignore them. And then in either case, if that's going to be my reaction that I want to avoid seeing what they have to say in response, what's the point of responding? <laughs> you know, yeah. I always think very carefully. A lot of times I'll start to respond to something and I'll be like, no, never mind. This is not worth my time. Yeah. I have more important things to think about. So I think it's important to set those boundaries. And, it's all, and it is important to use features like hiding certain accounts, like if you still want to be connected with somebody but they mm-hmm. say things that irritate you, being like, okay, I'm going to hide you for 30 days and I'll go to your page when I want to see you because <laughs> I don't <laughs> want it to disrupt them. Yeah, <laughs> I completely agree. You have but to create your own environment. Yeah, because otherwise the other thing is you can't get ideas from some of these things. Mm-hmm. I have got ideas from stories from reading those stupid little articles on Facebook that are just lists of weird anecdotes that people tell. I see these in my ads all the time like, the 30 most shocking stories you'll ever see. And they're mostly a waste of time. And sometimes I read them, I'm like, well, that would make a good idea for like a real story. Yeah, that's a good point. So there's lots of ways to get creativity too from these, as long as you yeah. have the good, have good boundaries and everything. Are you a spirited, spectacular woman with a message, method, or framework that would change lives if only more people knew of it? Are you ready to grow your audience, strengthen your authority, and attract more clients through publishing a book? If so, it's time to bring your book idea to life. As a book coach who specializes in working with passionate, purpose-driven women, I can help you successfully write and publish your first or next book. Through a customized blend of strategy, accountability, writing prompts, and sisterhood, I will guide you to clarify your book vision to attract the right readers, structure your book so that it sends your readers on an exciting heroine's journey that makes them take action when they finish reading, Create an energizing writing routine, even if you don't consider yourself a writer. Maintain focus amidst distractions so that you get it done in half the time. Query your book proposal to agents and publishers with authority or self-publish your book with confidence. And make an impact with your book post-launch. Don't let your book stay trapped inside you any longer. Let's get your wisdom out into the world. Visit booksandalchemy.com coaching to learn more about my personalized book coaching services for women who are ready to elevate their reach and impact and get more clients doing it. This is your season. Let's show the world. One thing I want to touch on, you mentioned a few minutes ago that you have to use time blocking and using your calendar to kind of block out time for writing because otherwise you might end up writing all day and spend the whole day on that when you have other things to do. So how do you manage hyper-focus so that you don't spend hundred percent of your time on one project or is it just the time blocking or do you have some other ways that you also manage it? Time blocking is the biggest thing and using the Pomodoro timer because since you're forced to take that five minute break, that's a good time to get up and be like, I'm going to think about something else. I usually try to take a walk every day, which I need to do for my health anyway. 
So towards the afternoon when my energy starts lagging, it's a good time to take a walk because that's a good way change of environment can change things. And it all depends on the day because there are some days where I might wake up and be like, this is just going to be a hyper-focused day and that's how it is. Mm. And you can tell when it's like that because if it's going to be like that, it's a time when I'm like, okay, I have writing to do and I have this article that's a paid article that I should work on also and I've got to do this or that for other areas of my life but I feel that when I don't that if I don't work on the writing I'm not going to do anything because I'm sitting there thinking I should be doing something else but I really want to write if that's the case I might as well turn on the Pomodoro timer and go with it at least for a little while and see what happens and Mm -hmm. it's okay to have a day sometimes like it's an off day where your brain is just undoing this as long as it's not all the time and try to do things. And I try to schedule things so that important things get done in advance because you never know. You don't want to wake up on a day that you have bills to pay, the bills are due, and your brain is like, I'm not cooperating with that today. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think it's important to try to take advantage of your energy when you have on your focus when you have it because there are days where it's easier to focus on a variety of things. And on those days, it's always good to be like, okay, I'm having a good focusing day. Let's get as much done as possible today because you never know tomorrow I might wake up and be like I don't want to do anything except this yeah I think I have the opposite problem I tend to not be able to focus on any one thing because I keep every other little thing that's in my life comes in to my brain and I think oh gosh I have to get this done right now or I just worry about it and it kind of prevents me from working on my writing or something like that. And what I end up having to do is just, I make a little to-do list. It's not even a to-do list. I think it's from Alan David's book, the Get Things Done book. And you just write down every thought that comes to your mind so that it's on paper and your brain is not worrying about forgetting it. And then I think, okay, I'm going to work on my writing for the next half hour, hour, two hours. And anytime something comes up, I just write it down. And that's the only way I can focus on some days. Hyperfocus honestly sounds great to me, <laughs> although not all the time, but the right. ability to. <laughs> right. I mean, it is a double-edged sword because when you're hyper-focused, you block out the whole world and time just passes. And that, that this happens to me at night sometimes. It's like 11 o'clock at night. And I'm like, I have an idea for a scene. Let me just sit down and write this. The next thing I know, it's like 1.30 in the morning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is a double. The grass is always greener, isn't it? Yeah. But I do like the idea of the list, like you mentioned. And I teach people that too. Because sometimes when people are writing, they have an idea for some other type of writing. And then they don't get anything finished because they're like, oh, there's this new idea. And then you end up with 5,000 half-finished things and nothing goes anywhere. So... Mm-hmm. I recommend something similar for that, which is a later list where you just write down the idea, get it out of your head and go back to the idea you're working at. So it's kind of the same concept. Yeah. It's almost like when in meditation, when they tell you if a thought comes to you to just acknowledge the thought and let it go. And not that I'm a master meditator. I try, but yeah, it, it seems like sometimes you just have to tell your brain, okay, I hear you, but this is the wrong time and we will get to this later. Yeah. And we won't forget. (laughs) And we won't forget. I promise I won't forget, Brain. So you mentioned earlier that it can be disheartening when you're querying and you're not getting any any bites on your query. Did you traditionally publish Reinventing Hannah? I self-published Reinventing Hannah. I've been working on querying my new book, Heart Failure, and I've gotten 
a nice pile of rejections so far. So I kind of know both ends, but yeah. reinventing Hannah, I self-published partially because I I wanted complete creative control over it, and I felt, given the fact that most of the popular books that are traditionally published follow this formula that I'm not following. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to risk some someone being like, we're only going to publish it if you change it to be like everything else. So mm-hmm. um, I decided to go ahead and self-publish it. And it also was something I could do quickly. If you look at the timing, it came out April 2020. March 2020 was when COVID happened and everything was shut down. That's right. So it really was a good time to self-publish and not be like, oh, nobody is looking at queries because we're all in our houses hoping that we don't catch a plague so um, and ebook sales went up during covid yeah ebook sales went way up and i would say for the first six months my sales were pretty good and then they started dropping off so i think i needed more of a long-term marketing plan than i had of heart failure and i have another manuscript i completed also open secrets that i just finished and so i'm gonna see what happens? I might continue to try traditional publishing. I might self-publish. I haven't decided yet. <laughs> but I did want to at least try it and, you know, see what was possible because I also didn't want to be somebody who was like, I'm afraid to traditionally publish because I don't think that they'll take it kind of thing. Because <laughs> that's yeah. the stigma that people think about self-publishing is they think that people self-publish because they're not good enough to traditionally publish. And that's Which not, is not true. the case. No. <laughs> right. Unfortunately, self-publishing, you are competing with the people who write a first draft and then just throw it up there because they can. So there are some books that contribute to that. And yeah. now with ChatGPT and other AI apps, there are people who are just like, I'll just have the, I'll just ask AI to write it for me. I think, though, that and, those books will naturally kind of sink to yeah. the bottom. Yeah, they do. They sink so. to the bottom. And it's really really all about your marketing because I think some people get afraid when they see things like this and they're like oh my god there's so many books out there there's gonna be garbage out there how am I gonna compete but if your book is good and you market properly you won't be competing with that yeah a book is like any other product you have to put it in front of the right audience you have to connect with that right audience and it has to be a good product and then yeah there we go how are you finding the traditional publishing process are you enjoying the querying and the I mean, I know that I got a few rejection letters with my first book. And my when I say a few, I mean a lot. But I also got some really good feedback and really yeah. heartening responses too. It, it all depends on, there's always the form letters that are just like, this just was not right for us that leave you wondering why. <laughs> but yeah. there's also, I've gotten a couple of, thank you so much for sending this to us. I was really interested, but unfortunately it didn't grab me the way I thought it would, but please, Mm -hmm. if you have something else, feel free to submit again. That kind of thing. Those are more heartening. The one thing I will say about traditional publishing as opposed to self-publishing is the process is much slower because with self-publishing, you finish the book, you do all the editing you want to do, you decide if you want to get feedback from others or not up to you and when you get it and when you're ready you put it on amazon so you can theoretically publish within days of deciding that you Mm -hmm. want to although um we don't want to do that yeah you want to make sure that it's edited and it doesn't necessarily have to be professionally edited because i know a lot of people can't afford a professional editor the editors i was looking at were thousands of dollars so i was like Mm -hmm. that's not gonna happen (laughs) Um, but you can decide whether to have beta readers give you feedback if you're in a writing group you can get feedback from other writers there 
That's sort of thing. Yeah. You do want to get feedback from other people because there are things you're just not going to see if you're the only one reading it. Entering contests is always a good thing. I just got a very lovely rejection with a with some feedback from a contest where it was like you pay extra to get a feedback letter in addition to them deciding about the contest. And I'm glad I did because the person gave me some really good feedback on the pages that I submitted. Some of it I agreed with, some of it I didn't, but it was obvious that they took their time and read it and gave me their honest opinion. That's the kind of thing that you want. It's really valuable. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be hard to perceive that sometimes. Yeah. So I always take a day whenever I get feedback, whether it's from a friend who read it or a professional editor or whoever, I'm not going to decide right now because my initial reaction is always, well, that's stupid. I did it this way for a reason. (laughs) You know, I think it's natural to be like, well, I know why I did it. So I'm right. But after some time has passed, you can think about it more objectively. So it's really important not to make rash decisions about other people's feedback. But to get back to traditional publishing, it is slower because you have to go through so many people, right? You have to send out queries and get an agent. And once an agent is interested, then they have to send out queries to publishers mm-hmm. and get some interest there. And then once the publisher says they want to read it, then they might want you to make edits for them to consider it, or they might have to bring it to their editorial team and get everyone else on board before they can go ahead and publish it. So right. dealing with all those people takes a lot of time. And so... It's not going to be something that's instant. It's not going to be, I sent it in today and it's going to be published next month. It doesn't work that way. No, Um, it usually takes about 18 months from signed contract to publish date. And that's assuming that there's no mergers or acquisitions or layoffs and then you lose your editor at the publisher and have to start over. Right. And, And sometimes agents quit or they decide that this is not for them after all and start over at the beginning. So... It is very difficult traditionally. I think self-publishing is difficult in a different way because you have to wear every hat. And you have to look at it as a business. So you have to take your emotions out of it. Yeah, you have to look at it as a business. And that's not for everyone. Not everyone's an entrepreneur. Not everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And it's not the kind of thing that you want to just jump into and hope for the best because you're just wasting a lot of time and money that way. So you want to make sure you know what you're doing. And so they're both difficult in different ways. But I do understand like some people will be like, I don't know how many years I have left in my life. I don't want to wait years to see if I'm going to be published. And so that's a perfectly valid reason. Mm -hmm. And I think having that creative control, because sometimes the market trends aren't always right. And the editors uh, and publishers and agents who are looking at your work and comparing it to what's out there, might not have the full picture. You know, there are some times when they're like, I don't think this book would sell. And then you self-publish it and people are like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And because they're so slow, they know that they're behind. So I'll give an example, like when Twilight came out and Vampire Romance was big for however long, the publishers stopped wanting to take Vampire Romance because they said, oh, this is going to burn out and it's not going to be, it's not going to sell anymore. And Vampire Romance is still selling for self-published authors and it goes through shifts where like maybe it goes from vampire romance to werewolf romance and then back to vampire right. romance so i mean right you have that opportunity to pivot when you're self-publishing but you have you know there's different expertises in, involved in, in traditional right exactly and i will say one advantage of the traditional is that if you do sign a contract you get the advance you know they pay yeah. you some money in advance yeah. of your royalties 
And that's helpful, not just for obviously anytime you get paid is good for your bank, mm-hmm. <laughs> bank yes. account, or your finances. in your creative spirit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But also, if you're considering the marketing you want to do, you're going to have to do some marketing yourself either way, right? You can't just yeah. like depend on the publisher market for you. But if, if you are getting some money from them up front, then you might be able to put some of that towards marketing and be able to market in different ways than as a self published author if you're first starting out and you're somebody who mainly is li- living paycheck to paycheck or you have a lot of expenses, then you're going to have to save money for all these things before you can even publish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are so, excellent points. So you do a lot of writing and I know that you also run a membership and yes. you just opened up a new Facebook group. So let me talk to you about overwhelm in your business, especially yes. like how do you overcome or prevent yourself from getting overwhelmed with all this stuff that you take on every day? Right. It's a lot of stuff. Right. And there's a lot of stuff. And I won't pretend to be perfect at it because I think sometimes when we, when people are like busy and they want to raise this face to the world of, let me help you with this, they want to act like they never experience yeah. it. So I do experience overwhelm sometimes. But that's why it's really helpful to have a support group, right? Because I'm in a couple of paid business memberships that mm-hmm. are really helpful because if you're in those those support groups, you could go to your writing group or to your business group or whoever and be like, I'm really feeling overwhelmed and people will help you. And like sometimes even just saying it can be helpful. You can like just get it out and you can get on with your day. One of the things I do for writer's block also works for overwhelm and that's to free write about what's going on. So say I sit down to write, I'm like, I have no idea what should happen in this chapter. I might open a document in Evernote or Google Docs and be like, just free write why I'm stuck. And usually by the end of that session, I'll have an idea of what's supposed to happen. And you can do that for overwhelm too. You'll get ideas just by like getting it out of, of paper. Mm-hmm. And then the best thing to do is to try to prevent overwhelm as much as you can, because it's better to not have it in the first place than to have to deal with it. Oh <laughs> so, my gosh, preach. <laughs> so preach. That's where the calendar really helps because- yeah. One of the things I've learned too is not to try to overstack every day. When I first started in one of my business groups, they would ask, what are your goals for for this week? And I would list like 26 or 30 goals. And other people in the group would be like, I'm getting tired just looking at this. And mm-hmm. I learned it doesn't really work. It's too much. Yeah. That's what so I do. I try to choose my top three priorities every day mm-hmm. because that way it's three goals that I can get done. If I get them more done, great, but I don't have to do 30 things at a time. So that's really helpful. And again, the calendar, because if you look at your calendar and you're like, okay, where can I fit this in? And that can be a really good hint that you're taking on too much, because if you have a bunch of goals and you look at your calendar and you're like, I don't have a room any place for mm. this, then that Oh, you're calling you me out, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> that means that something has to change. <laughs> you have to look at your priorities and be like, yeah. okay, which of these are most important? Because I don't have a room for this now. Can I put it off or is there something else I can put off? Because otherwise, the other alternative is to stay up all night and to work through dinner and to work all weekends. And then eventually, I find I'll have a day where my brain just totally turns off and I don't do anything because I've been doing too much. So, mm. Yeah. I mean, and that's happened to me. I, this is a good reminder for me because I'm certainly the same person who I, I will put down 20 things that are... I'll call them all priorities. And are they really priorities? No, but I internally want them to be priorities. So I do them. And it's a good reminder for me that I need to just pick three and just focus on getting those done. Because once you get those three done, your brain, 
is like, good job. You did great. Nice work. And then you feel good about yourself versus if you had gotten that same three done in one day, but you had a list of 12, your brain is going to tell you that you're awful and, and terrible right. and, and you failed. And that's but just not true. Anything. Yeah, it's, not, yeah. it's totally not true. And I think that's where the problem lies is a lot of times we wish we could be in 10 places at once because we want to do everything. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Well, this has been a really lovely conversation, Jack. I would love for you to share with everybody one tip that you think is really helpful. Okay, one tip. Let me see what my top tip would be of my own, who <laughs> I just said it to action. So I think the most important thing is to realize whatever your process is, is your process and it's okay. Even if your brain doesn't work the same way other people's do, like don't compare to what other people do. Remember, don't try to run Mac software on a Windows computer or vice versa. Find things that work for you and go with them. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. And where can everybody find you online? Okay, so I am on Facebook. Uh, my Facebook username is coach and author Jack Ori. I'm also on Twitter or X, I guess it's called these days, yeah. <laughs> Instagram and threads as author Jack or Ree. I don't really use most of those that much, but I'm there. So mm-hmm. if you want to, so if that's your favorite platform, reach out and say hi there. But as I mentioned earlier, I have a new Facebook group called the Neurodiverse Writers Lab, which is at Facebook slash group slash Neurodiverse Writers Lab. And it is for neurodiverse writers to get support. So like I was talking about before, how important it is to have support. This is a place you can get it where every Monday I ask people to set their goals. I check in with you. On Friday, we celebrate our wins. In between, I talk about writing, ask you questions about your writing process. And we just get interact, get to know each other, get to support one another's projects. It is a completely free group. I do promote other stuff that's not free in there once in a while just so you know but that's not the purpose of the group it's not a come here so I can sell to you it's come here so I can give you support and if you want to do these other things you can and group members do get discounts on my other services so just as a bonus so I just started a week ago and I have 11 people in there so far I would love to see more people in there so come check it out see if it's for you the more writers i can support the better We're really excited about that and my website is also authorjackory.com so you can get more information on me there contact me there and That's check out what i going on the facebook group sounds really valuable so all of y'all neurodiverse writers out there this is where you want to be for help and support Well, thank you so much for coming to talk with me today, Jack. It was really lovely to have this conversation with you. And I know that everybody's going to find it very valuable. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you too. Perfect. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Dream Season. I've got just one thing to ask of you. Please, please, please leave a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. All you need to do is select a star rating, and I hope it's five stars, but please be honest, and tap, type, or even voice to text one or two sentences about your experience listening, something you learned, or something you loved. This is the single most important thing you can do to help this podcast succeed. And as a thank you to anyone who leaves a review today, I will send you a free audio guided visualization for each season, so you can find your creativity no matter the season. Just email a screenshot of your review to hello at booksandalchemy.com 
and I'll send you the visualization. Thank you again for listening. And remember, no matter the season, remember to dream. Remember to dream.